All right, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and the title of this morning's sermon is Justice, part 1, with the, the subheading being Understanding Our Just God. So justice, understanding <clears throat> our, <clears throat> excuse me, just God. And I want to, again, read from Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 8. And so if you are here with me, if you will stand uh, out of reverence for God's Word. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, you are welcome to stand as we read God's Word together. But Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, considering this idea of justice, understanding our just God. I hear the word of the Lord. Micah records, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal. So that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, He has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Heavenly Father, as we over these next few weeks consider this idea of justice, I pray that as we reflect on who you are and we reflect on what you have done, Lord, that it would drive us to walk faithfully, that we would be people who act justly, who love faithfulness and who walk humbly with you so we ask that by your spirit's power you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may be the kingdom of God present on earth we love you it's in Jesus name amen you may be seated Well, again, good morning, Newbreed. It's good to be back with you. It's good to see some of you here this morning who I didn't have the privilege of seeing last week uh, and who I probably won't have the privilege of seeing next week. But Lord willing, you'll be back in two weeks. And thankful for those of you who are watching online. And I am again thankful for this opportunity to open God's Word with you as we work through this series entitled Race, Justice, and the cross. And as I told you last week, we're going to spend this week and next week considering this idea of justice. And then we'll conclude this series by, by looking a little at the cross and the reconciling work of the cross. But again, I want to draw your attention to this idea of justice. And, and what we're going to do, it's a little bit different than how sorm- sermons kind of typically flow, right? Like we like to teach through books of the Bible. I like to take texts of scripture and unpack them. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to use that text that we just read in Micah 6 more as a springboard to kind of take us to some other places in scripture. So we're not going to necessarily, at least this week, dissect that text, but we're going to let it be our guide for how we should begin to think about justice in order to, as it says in verse 8, act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly before our God. So we're going to use this text as a starting point, but we're going to need to look at multiple other texts of Scripture to get a fuller picture of justice. And so I'll come back to that in just a a moment, but let me encourage you, especially if you're taking notes, I wouldn't necessarily recommend trying to keep up 
in terms of flipping in your Bible to all the passages of Scripture we're going to go to. But if you're a note taker, which I would encourage you to be, maybe it would be good to write down some of these passages of Scripture. We'll, we'll read them, but, but you can write them down and go back and visit them on your own throughout the week. That, that would probably be uh, the best way to do this. I also want to mention to you that this sermon is going to be a little bit different. I was sharing with uh, some, some of the brothers here at the church of sermons like this can at times be really tough for me because this is going to be a little bit more of, of a teaching sermon rather than a preaching sermon. Meaning in some sense there is just some, some truth about who God is that I, I have to communicate to you that you've got to start to internalize and dissect before we ever really get to the application of it, which we'll look at more next week. There's just some truth about God that we have to understand, and so it's going to be a little bit more of a teaching time rather than than a preaching time, and some of you might get to the end of this and be like, well, I couldn't tell the difference, and I don't know if that's an indictment on me or, or what, but that, that's what we're going to do a little bit. We're going to kind of unpack in teaching form this idea of God's justice but but what i want to say here at the beginning is this as believers as christians as those who are who are redeemed by jesus and called to walk in light of that redemption we have to understand justice properly <clears throat> we have to understand justice properly you know, I was, I was reading an article by Tim Keller. It's actually a series of articles. They're, they're very good thinking about race and justice and things of that. But, but in one of them, he said this regarding justice. Tim Keller wrote that in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little about biblical justice despite its prominence in the scriptures. Now, now listen to this. He says, this ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. But second, many younger Christians recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice which introduces distortions into their practice and lives. So let me, let me sum that up. What, what Keller is arguing there is that in the Bible, in, in biblical times, in the ancient Near East, even, even through the early church in the first century, people had a rich understanding of justice. A rich understanding of justice. The idea of justice wasn't controversial. But for some reason, in our day and age, that's faded. And Keller argues that because of that, two things are happening. First, people are neglecting the fact that the Bible calls us to do justice at all. Right? For some Christians, the, the, very, the, the moment that I said do justice, they already flipped on these lens by which they were going to view me as worldly and secular and this, that, and the other. And so, so there, is, there is the real category of those believers who think that the moment you talk about doing justice, you're deviating from the truth of Scripture somehow. I don't fully understand how they get there, especially when you read texts like we just read, even in verse 8, where it specifically says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly or to do justice, to love faithfulness and walk humbly with your God. And so for some reason, people are acting like on this side of the cross, that no longer matters. But, but not only is that happening, there's kind of, <clears throat> there's kind of as Keller argues, this counter-reaction going on. And, and what he says is that many well-meaning Christians are adopting a false understanding of justice. And, and those false understandings of justice are contrary to what the Bible teaches. But what they're doing is they're trying to intertwine those false understandings of justice into their Christian faith, and they're finding themselves, if we're being honest, all jacked up in their thinking. They're really screwed up as they're trying to intertwine these secular ideas of justice into the concepts and the truth of their faith, and it's really messed some people up along the way. And so what this is all pointing to is the fact that we need to have a proper understanding of justice. 
We need to have a proper understanding of justice. And the only way that we can do that, church, is by first having a proper understanding of who God is. I mean, we, we see that in, in a sense in the text that we just read. So, so, so let me show you this. In, in the book of Micah, what, what God is doing is God is confronting Israel for their sin. That, that, that's basically what the prophetic book is about. It's not a stretch for us. That's what a lot of the prophetic books are about, right? God confronting the sin of his people, calling to them repentance, to repentance and telling them what's going to happen if they don't repent. And so that's what's going on in Micah. That God is calling out uh, the sin of Israel, but he specifically is talking about sin as it relates to both oppression and injustice. So, so, so God uses both of those words in the book of Micah. And that's, that's what he's focusing on as the failure of the people of Israel during this time of Micah. And so what God is saying is, listen, he, he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to walk faithfully. But he's telling them, look, if you don't, I'm going to judge. I have to judge. I am a holy and just God. I cannot let sin go unpunished. But God promises that even in judgment that he will redeem and restore his people unto himself. And in that redemption and restoration, God says that he will righteously reign over his people. And so in chapter 6, you have what you could say is God's desired response of his people. This is what he wants to see them do. This is what repentance will look like. And so in our text this morning, the call for believers to live faithfully, right? So what we are to do begins in, in verse 6. So, so let me read it again. Beginning in verse 6, reading through 8 again, it says, What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, or some of your translations say to do justice to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. And so that's, that's the call that is placed. That, that's God calling the people to live faithfully. And, and we're going to look a little bit more at those verses next week. But before the call to live faithfully, you have to notice what God says in verses 1 through 5. God, God says this, Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit. You mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. Now, now notice this in verse 3. He says, my people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you, my people. Remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal. And notice this, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. And so, so this is very important. This is, this is why we're going to do what we're going to do this morning, okay? Before the Lord calls his people to live faithfully, before he calls them to, to do justice and to love faithfulness or to love mercy and to walk humbly before God, God calls them to reflect on who he is and what he has done for them. Again, there's a reason for that because ultimately what God knows is that any proper understanding of what is right and just has to come from a proper understanding of God. Any proper understanding of what is right and just, what is righteous and what is justice, it has to flow from a proper understanding of God. Why? Now hear me on this because God is the objective reality and example of everything that is right and just. 
So in order for the people to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with their God, they first have to have a proper understanding of who this God is in terms of His righteousness and His justice. In other words, God is the pinnacle. He is the objective reality of everything righteous and everything justice. And so to some degree, if I'm being really honest with you guys, I'm kind of tired of the world trying to tell me what justice is. I'm kind of tired of the world telling me what social justice is. I'm tired of the world telling me what environmental justice is. I'm tired of the world telling me what economic justice is. And I'm not saying they aren't raising valid concerns, but I'm tired of the world offering solutions because apart from God, anything will fall short in terms of righteousness and justice. All of the world's ideas fall short because, listen, We're going to get a little technical here because they are based on subjective realities. The world standards of justice is based on ever-changing truth. But the only justice that will stand is justice that is determined, defined, and derived at by a proper understanding of who God is. You know, in that article that I was reading by Tim Keller, he, he very helpfully, or, or it's very helpful to me, he kind of breaks down the world's understanding of justice into a few different categories. And, and he works it like ju- justice on the individual level, kind of over to justice on the collective level, and how the world speaks of justice. And so he brings up a couple different categories, right? He talks about the libertarian understanding of justice, where justice is basically about freedom. Uh, That's kind of how the libertarians understand justice, that justice is about freedom. But again, it falls short because it doesn't match up with the Bible. Because libertarians, as Keller notes, they're focusing on, on freedom from something. But see, whenever the Bible speaks about freedom, it talks about freedom to something. That's an interesting concept. We, even as Americans, think of freedom from things, right? That we want freedom from someone uh, uh, taking our property or from X, Y, or Z. But biblical freedom is now you have freedom to you have freedom to follow God. You have freedom to walk in the good works prepared before. So it, so it falls short. You also have kind of a liberal understanding of what is justice. And they understand justice, justice as basically being all about fairness. It's all about fairness. But the problem comes in is that for the liberal understanding of justice, fairness is somewhat of a relative term depending on who you ask. There is no ultimate standard of what is fair and what is right. You see kind of a utilitarian understanding of justice, where justice is basically all about happiness. Again, whose happiness? Because what happens when my happiness doesn't match your happiness? There's no objective truth there. It's all subjective. Or you have what is very prominent in our day and age right now, a postmodern understanding of justice, where justice is basically all about power. It's all about power. And and, and the problem comes in that that still, it's very subjective in terms of how you understand power. Who gets to define it? Who gets to to map it out? And and they struggle to offer a solution that that has an objective base to it. Uh, That kind of got off in the weeds there a little bit. It was more, I think, from my brain maybe, but... But what I want you to see is that any true sense of justice has to flow from God. Because God is the objective standard for righteousness and justice. I love how Matthew Easton puts it when he writes defining the justice of God. And he says this, that the justice of God, the perfection of his his nature, whereby he is infinitely righteous in all he does. The righteousness of the divine nature exercised in his moral government. At first, God imposes righteous laws on his creatures and executes them righteously. Now, I want you to hear this. Pay attention to this sentence. He says, justice is not an optional product of his will, but an an unchangeable principle of his very nature. Again, I want you to catch that last line. Justice is not an optional product of his will, but an unchangeable principle of his 
very nature. In other words, righteousness and justice are part of the very nature of God. They are part of what makes God, God. Again, therefore, any true understanding of what is right and just, to be righteous and to do justice, we have to begin with God himself because he is the objective standard of righteousness and justice. So we have to look at him and define what justice is. So this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to look at God and the laws that he has set in place to gain a better understanding of who this just God is and what his justice looks like in his recorded word. Because, again, this will affect how we understand doing justice. And so I want to look at four categories of God's justice this morning. Uh, I'm going to tell them to you now. It's all right if you don't write them all down because we'll, I'll map them out as we work through them. But four categories of God's justice. We're going to look at God's distributive justice. We're going to look at God's procedural or some would say legislative justice. We're going to look at God's retributive justice. And then finally, we're going to look at God's restorative justice. Now, before we dive into those, we have to actually begin with Deuteronomy 10.17. Because in Deuteronomy 10.17, we're reminded of this. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, here it is, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. And so God's justice begins with what we talked about last week. His justice begins with impartiality. It begins with a general understanding that is kind of the umbrella of God's justice. God shows no favoritism. God, God shows no impartiality. So we could say that God looks upon us with equity. Meaning, with fairness, without showing any preference to particular people, God shows no partiality. Remember what I said last week as we talked about partiality. That partiality is determining a person's worth and value by physical and earthly standards. For example, determining a person's worth and value based on skin color or language they speak or country they are from or the amount of money they make or the home or lack of home they live in. When you determine someone's worth or value or what is due them based on those things you are showing partiality. And God is a God who shows no partiality. So as the umbrella over his justice is this idea of equity. You tracking with me? Told you it's going to be a different one. It's equity. So his justice is impartial. There is no favoritism shown. And so what we can conclude from this very important truth is that any earthly claim of justice that uses partiality is actually no justice at all. Any earthly claim of justice that uses partiality is actually no justice at all. We'll see that fleshed out a little bit in just a moment. But you see this equity in all four aspects of God's justice. And so first, I want to consider this idea of distributive justice. Of distribu distributive justice. And so let me give you what I found to be a helpful explanation of distributive justice written by a, a T.M. Moore. He says this, In ancient Israel... It was the responsibility of a local community to distribute freely of its goods to those who were in need among them. Whether such people became poor through some unforeseeable exigency or whether they were immigrants or disabled, justice required that they be provided for according to their need by the community in which they lived. That's distributive justice. And so listen, when we, are, when we talk about distributive justice, we are talking about impartial and fair treatment of the poor and the needy. But listen, God gets to define what fair treatment is. So when we talk about caring for the poor, when we talk about meeting the needs of the needy, we are talking about an ish, a justice issue. 
But we see this, right? We see God's distributive justice and His care in this area, even in the laws that were instituted by Him. Take, for example, the gleaning laws in Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10, right? We, we studied a while back Ruth, and we saw those gleaning laws there, right? Where Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Distributive justice. You you see distributive justice with the year of Jubilee. We talked about that recently at the end of Daniel, right? In the year of Jubilee. Where where after 50 years, each person was allowed to return. Check this out. In the year of Jubilee, each person was allowed to return and possess their property regardless of if they had sold it or not. They were allowed to return to the land of their family and possess the land. It was given back to them. Them. We see this in Leviticus 25, verses 13 through 16. It says, In the year of Jubilee, each of you will return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbor or a purchase from him, do not cheat one another. You are to make the purchase from your neighbor based on the number of years since the last Jubilee. He is to sell to you based on the number of remaining harvest years. You are to increase its price in proportion to a greater amount of years and decrease its price in proportion to a lesser amount of years because what he is selling to you is a number of harvests. You see, let me try to break this down. At the heart of distributive justice is this idea, as Bruce Walkey says, that the righteous... The righteous, the just, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. Yo, that's a crazy concept in our day and age. That, that when God looks at what is just, he understands it to be righteousness on display played out by a willingness to disadvantage yourself to advantage the community. But on the flip side, Bruce uh, Walkie also notes that the wicked are characterized as those who will disadvantage the community for their own advantage. And see, what it does is it comes from this perspective and understanding that ultimately everything we have belongs to the Lord. It's not ours anyway. And it has been given to us to steward well. And so God is teaching us that if we are going to steward with righteousness and justice, it will demand a willingness to disadvantage ourselves for the good of others. That is just. But for the record, that is not socialism. That is not socialism. I just want to throw this in there, right, just so we can be clear. I mean, for some reason in America, people are talking about socialism like it's the great blasphemy. Capitalism and socialism are amoral categories. One is not more wicked or righteous than the other. In fact, the Bible doesn't speak about either one of them directly. What is righteous and what is wicked is what you do in those systems. You can be righteous and just in a socialist system. You can be righteous and just in a capitalistic system. I don't know what they call it, but you can be like righteous and just in a bartering system. It doesn't matter the system. It matters what you do with what you have. It's not socialism, though. And that's, somebody listening to this is going to be like, he's teaching socialism, distributing what, you know, a redistribution of wealth. It's not socialism. Because socialism would demand that the state take your resources and redistribute them equally. And that's not what this is. This is an individual who loves righteousness and cares about justice, who is willing on their own to generously care for those who are without, to willingly disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. Socialism doesn't give you a choice. This is not socialism. This is distributive justice. But I want you to see that this is not just an Old Testament concept because we see it in the New Testament as well. We just don't often pay attention to it. We see it in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost 
where we read in verses 43 through 45, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Listen to this, verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So when God, check this out, when God is painting a picture for us of the powerful work of the Spirit moving among His people, He says that it played itself out in distributive justice. Among other things, but you see distributive justice. This points to God's design of justice played out through righteous distribution. But it goes beyond that and it reflects the heart of God, right? We said that all of these ideas of justice begin with God. Distributive justice reflects the heart of a God who distributes. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. John 14, beginning in verse 2, In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. God's heart is a generous heart towards His creation. It is a generous heart. Now there's a lot of application that we can make there. But next week, we're going to try to really focus on the application. I'm hoping, though, that even now the Holy Spirit is maybe picking at some things in your life that you could do to to, to be faithful to this area of righteousness and justice. But we will come back to it next week. But this is the idea behind distributive justice. But I want to draw your attention to the, the second aspect of God's justice. And that is procedural, or I'm going to use the term legislative justice. Legislative justice. And what this has to do, it has to do with justice as it plays itself out on a legislative level, meaning when it comes to laws, that God cares about justice in the legal system. God cares that laws are just because just laws reflect who he is. They are impartial. Just laws are impartial and they show no favoritism. They show no preference because this is how God operates. Because again, God is impartial and right and wrong is impartial. There is objective standards of morality that also flow from God. Contrary to what the world says is moral. But, but again, this, this legislative justice. So we, we, we see examples of this riddle throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.15. It says, do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Deuteronomy 16, 18-20. God says, appoint judges and officials for your tribes and all your towns the Lord your God is giving you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. He says, do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bribe, for it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone. That's what God says. Pursue justice and justice alone so that you will live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs twenty twenty three, Differing weights are detestable to the Lord and dishonest scales are unfair. Here's what I want you to see. When it comes to not only to individual interactions with other people, not only with us as we as individuals conduct business with one another, right? But even in regards to systems that are in place, specifically the judicial system, God cares whether or not laws are just, whether or not they are impartial or show favoritism. So much so that God wrote into His divine law over and over and over and over again protections against partiality and bias on a systemic level. 
God wrote that into his divine law because he cares that the process, that the legal process is fair, that it is unbiased, that it shows no partiality. And so hear me, what that tells us is that this is something that should matter to us. We should be paying attention to these things. So, so let me just kind of speak candidly, and I know we're going to get into kind of fleshing this thing out next week, but I couldn't pass this one by. Those who should be paying the most attention to it, and we'll unpack why next week, those who should be paying the most attention to impartial systems are those whom the system benefits. Because what we'll see is that part of our doing justice is to advocate for the marginalized and the voiceless. And when systems are stacked against a particular group of people for whatever reason that may be, whether it's the color of their skin, whether it's the amount of money they have, whether it's where they're from in this world, when it is stacked against them, it is the voice of those who are benefited by the system who will change the system. Let me just put this really, really plainly in our conversation about race, justice, and the cross. My white brothers and sisters, you do not have the option to check out. You do not have the option to ignore systemic injustices because they really don't affect you that much. You should be leading the fight. Because again, as we'll see next week, those, those who have are called to advocate for those who have not. You should be leading the fight. In fact, you're commanded in Scripture to be leading the fight. So when we hear people decrying systems of injustice and Christians' responses to that are, that's Marxist thought. That's the social gospel. When you talk about systemic injustice, you're talking about the social gospel. We must denounce those responses as antithetical to the word and character of God. We call that response sin. We call it sin. Because God cares about justice on a systemic and a legislative level. So we have distributive justice and we have legislative justice. But now I want to draw your attention to God's retributive justice. Retributive, R-E-T-R-I-B-U-T-I-V-E, retributive justice. And what retributive justice is all about is, is just punishment for those who commit offenses. R retributive justice has to do with punishment for wrongdoing. And, and I just want to remind you that it is just and right for the wicked to be punished. You know, it, this idea of retributive justice, I would contend... It's, it's probably the part of justice we think about most in terms of God's justice. <clears throat> and that's partially because we see this aspect of God's justice so clearly in our own lives. That God must punish wrong. That God must punish sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then what we learn in Romans 6.23 is that the wages of our sin is death. We get the concept, or at least we should, of God's retributive justice. Because it is God's retributive justice that demands that sin be punished. And we know that there's no escaping this. Evil, wrongdoing, sin. It must be punished by God if God is truly just. Because punishment for sin, it, it does strike at the heart of God's judgment. And we cannot escape this. Psalmist writes in Psalm 130, verse 3, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? Sin, our sin, brothers and sisters, deserves punishment. But this is a punishment that is distributed with equity. God shows no partiality in his punishment for sin. We saw that when we talked about partiality in James 2.10, right? For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of all. God shows no partiality even in his retributive justice. One sin, regardless of what that sin is, it, 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 it denotes you as a lawbreaker. You are guilty of breaking the law. doesn't matter what the sin is. God, God judges 
with equity. A side note here, this truth is essential to our gospel message. It's essential to our gospel message because if we lose this truth, if we lose the reality that God must punish sin, if God can simply let sin slide, then he ceases to be just and therefore he ceases to be God. But our God does punish sin and it is always righteous and it is always just when he does it. But this aspect of God's character it's not just reserved for God because we see it fleshed out even here on earth. But it's a little different than some of the others, right? The other aspects of God's judgment are aspects of God's judgment that every Christian on an individual level should seek to, to walk out. But in terms of God's retributive justice, that is not something that every human being can walk out. What I mean by that is it is not your job as an individual to punish someone else's sins. It is not your job. As best as I can see it in Scripture, that's left to two people, to God and to government. But God allows retributive justice to be fleshed out on this earth through government. We see that in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. He says in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, the avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. But I want you to notice this, and this is very important. Because we know that God's retributive justice is perfect. But the problem is we live in a sin broken world and so when it's fleshed out on an earthly level it it often doesn't look like god's retributive justice because remember god's retributive justice shows no partiality it shows no favoritism therefore any earthly reflection of god's retributive justice if it is going to be just has to show no partiality let me put it plainly and you'll see where i'm going with this it means that no one gets a pass no one gets a pass the rich should not get a pass when it comes to retributive justice. White people should not get a pass when it comes to retributive justice. The police should not get a pass when it comes to retributive justice. Because God shows no partiality. In fact, the Bible actually goes so far as to say that those who hold positions of authority should actually incur a stricter judgment. And that's not being impartial because when you willingly step into a role of authority, then you are willingly taking on those responsibilities. I know that for me as a pastor, there is a level of responsibility. I will be held accountable for something before God to a degree that you will not if you don't step into this role. It's not that I get a lighter treatment by God. It's that I am willingly saying, I'll take a harsher treatment. That's the same for any of people who are in positions of power. You see it with the kings in the Old Testament. You see it with government and officials that those who are in power, those who have power, will be held to a higher standard. And so when our system on earth is flip-flop, where those who have power hold to a lesser standard, that is not an, an, an indicator of God's retributive justice. It's a broken system. That's why I think we should get a, do away with qualified immunity, but that's a different topic. The rich don't get a pass. The white don't get a pass. Police don't get a pass. It is to be impartial retributive justice because sin must be punished. Our sin, brothers and sisters, must be punished if God is just. But there is good news because God's Justice does not end with his retributive justice. And this is the last aspect of God's justice that I want to talk about. It's probably the most significant in our conversation right now, but I left myself the least amount of time to do it. But I want to talk about God's restorative justice, his restorative justice. And what restorative justice does, listen to me, Restorative justice seeks to reconcile and restore that which has been broken. 
Restorative justice seeks to reconcile and restore that which has been broken. And, and I really, I, I, I found it very helpful actually how Dr. Eric Mason talked about restorative justice because he broke it down into two subcategories. So it's all under this heading of restorative justice, but he talks about preventative justice and intervening justice. Again, all under this heading of restorative justice, so preventative and intervening. So, so we see restorative justice play out first through preventative measures, preventative justice, right? So, so this is where God would seek to prevent injustices from occurring before they actually occur, preventing it. I mean, we see this by the hand of God in the law of God. I mean, in the law of God, he spells out what is just and what is unjust as a means of pointing people to righteousness. It is spelled out to, to hopefully prevent people from doing what is unjust. That, that's part of the reason God wrote this in the law, is to say, listen, don't do this because it's unjust. Don't take a bribe because it's unjust. Don't show favoritism because it's unjust. Don't treat the foreigner any different than the person in the native land. Leviticus 24. We have to wrestle with that one too, right? No partiality. And God is doing that to hopefully prevent injustice from reigning in this world. Now we know though, and God knows that the law will not ultimately stop people from sinning. Right, Romans 3.20, for, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But the law is still put in place by God as a preventative measure to, to hopefully curb injustice. I mean, you see this clearly when Jesus explains the divorce laws in the Gospel of Matthew. But again, it's through the law that God sets up boundaries by which we know what is right, right and just. But there's another aspect of restorative justice, not just preventative justice, but also this intervening justice. So not only does God seek to prevent, but this is good, church, but God seeks to intervene, right? To reconcile and restore that which is broken through intervention. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is a picture of God's intervening justice. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God intervened to reconcile and restore that which was broken and unjust. He intervened. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God himself reconciles and restores through the cross. Where Jesus Christ shows up, he intervenes, he steps into this story of creation that has been broken by sin and where injustice and, and unrighteousness reign. And he walks this earth being righteous and just. And then what he does, and I pray that we never lose the magnitude of this, is then he, he intervenes on the cross for us. He takes our place and takes the retributive justice of God on himself so that we might be restored and reconciled. Jesus takes the full measure of God's punishment for sin that is rightly due us because he is a just and holy God. He takes it on himself. Again, in my place condemned, he stood. And he was crucified and killed, buried and raised from the dead three days later. That is Jesus intervening. That is a picture of God's interventional justice. And so through Jesus, the justice of God is satisfied. God has restored what is broken, and in that restoration, it is just and it is good. Let's go back to Romans 3.23, but keep reading. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, listen, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. God restores that which has been broken. God displays restorative justice. 
And again, that's good news to us because that is our only hope. So let me wrap this thing up here. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. He is a God of justice. And like I said, next week we'll begin to pick up on how specifically we act justly or do justice, how we love faithfulness and walk humbly before our God in light of what we've talked about. But before we could ever talk about that, we just had to take a look at who God is. Because God is a God of justice and any understanding of justice has to be derived from Him or else it's not really justice. And my hope has been at the end of this, I know there hasn't been a lot of application, but hopefully we at least have a better understanding of what the psalmist declared in Psalm 89 verse 14 when he says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So as we see that, my prayer is that we will begin to reflect God's justice here on earth. And we'll flesh that out a little bit more next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, you are ultimately too lofty for us to understand. God, even, even, as we, even as we take these, these four concepts of your justice, which doesn't even fully grasp the scope of your justice, God, I still feel a sense in which there is a weight that, that's too much for us to bear, God. And yet simultaneously, I know that you have called us to reflect who you are. That if you are a God of justice, we are to be people of justice. That if you are a God of mercy, we are to be people of mercy. If you are a God of grace, then we are to be people of grace. And so, Lord, my prayer is that you would just help us flesh that out. Because we are not strong enough to do that on our own. We just aren't. But by the power of your Spirit, we can walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. Again, God, we are ambassadors of your kingdom. We are living, breathing examples of the kingdom here on earth. And so help us to be faithful and help us, Lord, to paint an accurate picture of your kingdom. So God, as we chew on your justice and then move next week to talk about how we do justice, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that the Holy Spirit would be convicting and moving and working in us. Lord, I know that even though there wasn't a lot of direct application from me, that the Holy Spirit is really good at that and it's his job. And so I pray that as he is working on people's hearts and minds right now and seeking to apply these truths, that your children would be receptive. God, that we would do justice and love faithfulness and walk humbly before you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.